We're going to look in the book of Esther, but I want to start off with a beginning passage of the Torah portion because there's a phrase in here that comes back in the Purim story. The portion for this week is Tetzaveh, which means you are to order, and it's taken from the passage in Shemot from Exodus chapter 27 in verse 20. Just the first two verses, it says, you are to order the people of Israel to bring pure oil of pounded olives for the light and to keep a lamp burning continually. Aaron and his sons are to put it in the tent of meeting outside the curtain in front of the testimony and keep it burning from evening until morning before the Lord. This is a permanent regulation throughout all the generations of the people of Israel. You know, when we look, not to jump to the end, but when we look towards the end of the book of Esther, they declare this very same thing, that we are to make it a permanent regulation throughout all generations to remember what it was that God had done. And you know, even with Passover, it says, when your children ask you, what is this for? What does it mean? Tell them by a mighty hand, God brought us out of Egypt and out of slavery. This is the way that God works. But there's also that idea when he says, keep the lamp burning. Keep it fueled with the pure oil of God's presence, of his power, of his word, and of his anointed spirit dwelling within us. And these are elements that are a part of the message all throughout the scripture. Now, when we come to the story of Purim, it's not just a story. It's not just to wear masks. It's not just, it's not just a story. It's a celebration, a celebration of something that was very serious. The title for today's message is, Are We in Such a Time or What? Are we in such a time or what? One of the things that we see with Purim and with most of the holidays, but especially with Purim, I would say the day we're living in now, it's very similar in a lot of ways to the things that we're experiencing. A lot of the elements of oppression, a lot of the things that were going on, you see, this was a little bit different than when they were in Egypt. In Egypt, they were enslaved. They were beaten. They were whipped, all these kinds of things. But this was a different kind of slavery. They had turned their hearts away from the Lord and they went into captivity, into the Babylonian captivity. And the different type of enslavement that was there was the fact that they had to submit to all the different regulations of the land that they found themselves in. And so they adjusted their way of thinking. They adjusted their lifestyle. And sometimes when we take on the style of the world around us, we find ourselves thinking differently than when we originally were intended by God to think. And so he wants us not to be, he says in one place, to be in the world, but not of the world. And so in those circumstances, we saw that in Babylon, when Daniel was there and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, what's interesting is that even there was a slight adaptation because they were taking the Babylonian names. That's what people know them by. But they had Hebrew names. And yet, there was a subtle adjustment with that. But the one thing they did was that when it came time to 
being challenged about the things of God, when they were told to bow down before the idol, when they were told to do things that, or do certain things that they required and not do other things, Daniel opened his window and prayed to the God of heaven, the God of Israel. They were unwilling to back down from what God had called them to do. Unfortunately, most of the nation did back down. That's why they stood out as such lights within the community, because they stood firm in the things that God said. And I want to look at a number of illustrations when we go through this, because there are issues that are here at hand. One of the things that we see is people, when we talk about slavery, we talk about, you know, being chained and whipped and all these other things, abused and all of that. But the type of slavery that was here was in some ways a mental slavery. All of the things that God had provided for them were now lost as they went into captivity. And yet, for some, they just said, what's the use? We'll fit in. For others, they said, there are certain lines we won't cross. And they stood firm, and we have their testimony in the book of Daniel and in other passages and other places. And Esther is one of those books as well. Because what we see happening here, and we mentioned a few weeks ago about the spirit of Amalek, that one who attacked the weak and the young and the stragglers when they came out by a mighty hand out of Egypt, that God had delivered them, and he attacked the children. He attacked the weak. He attacked those who were vulnerable. And if you remember, he, God said, remember, don't forget, block out the memory of what Amalek did. Now, when we look later on in history, we find that King Saul was told by Samuel to destroy all of them. They were the Amalekites. And they allowed for one to escape. He said, why didn't you kill him? And there are stories about what happened, but it's understood that Haman, in Hebrew it would be Haman, was a descendant of Amalek. And the same spirit was there to destroy and to kill the Jewish people. But you know, I think the parallels are kind of interesting to consider also because there's an element of human nature that once they get angry, once they get upset, once they get their hatred kindled, they're without control. They can't stop. And one of the things that we saw in the story of Esther was that Haman wanted them to bow down to him. Mordecai wouldn't do that. They tried to get him, okay, come on, don't make a mess. Don't make waves, come on. And he was refusing to do it. And that made him indignant, made Haman indignant. He hated Mordecai. As a result, he decided to extend that hatred to the entire Jewish nation, the entire Jewish people. It's interesting. I mean, you can't think of any time in history where somebody hated a leader so much that they then tried to take it out on the entire population of those who supported him. It may sound familiar. But the point of the matter is, is that there are issues here that are very important to look at. 
as I mentioned before, it is not talking about slavery in the way that we've seen at different times, but there was a mental slavery. There was a slow destruction of the way that people considered what was important. And so what we see is a right to assemble. Look at our Constitution. A right to assemble is at the cornerstone of the First Amendment, even though it's probably the part that's missed a lot of times. To assemble for what purpose? To have freedom of speech, freedom of expression of religion, freedom of the press, freedom to protest your grievances to a government that may be out of control. They didn't have those rights there. But the one right that is a human right that is everybody's gift from God is liberty and freedom. And what we had was a more benevolent kind of a situation than you had in Egypt. And the people were getting along just fine in their new habitation. Everything was going okay until that spirit of Amalek came along. And as he came along, they became vulnerable once again. You know, once tyranny starts, if we don't raise our voice against it, we will be consumed by it. And there were people who stood up. We saw that with the Maccabees. We saw that with different ones along the way. God raised up Moses to go and bring deliverance. He raised up Mordecai and Esther, put them in position. And one of the things that we see also is that uh, with all of these things, God raised leaders. He raised up Daniel. He raised up these others to give living testimony of what it is to stay true to God in the midst of difficult times. God's favor was there, and he orchestrated circumstances to work in their behalf. He orchestrates those things for us as well if we open our hearts to see what it is God is wanting to do. Instead of just saying, let's just kind of ride the wave. Let's see how it will go. Let's take their back seat. Let's not make waves. Let's not make trouble. The fact of the matter is that we become subject to the world around us if we don't keep our focus centered on the one who is our life and the one who gave his life for us. When we focus on Messiah, when we focus on the Lord, he opens up doors of opportunity for us to be able to have words to speak. In fact, it's interesting that Yeshua told his disciples that you're going to come before kings, you're going to come before magistrates, you're going to come before people in authority, and don't worry about what you're going to say because I will give you the words. Like he gave the words to Jeremiah, like he gave words to Isaiah, like he gave words to the prophets, they didn't have these great oratory skills. In fact, Jeremiah said, I'm just a child. He told him not to say he's a child. God put in him the words that he would say. And so when these circumstances arise that look impossible, God is always looking for someone to raise up. Normally, they don't recognize the fact that they have those skills because God is the one that is imparting them. They feel a sense, we feel when this happens, a sense of absolute dependence on God because our own ability is not enough to overcome the challenges that are set before us. And God raised people up. 
In the same manner, he raised up Mordecai, and he set in order circumstances that were very strange. We saw the story as it unfolded with the banquet and with Vashti. I guess you could say <laughs> proclaiming her liberty and saying, it's free speech. And they said, not today. Boom, she was out. And then they had the beauty pageant and all of that going on. And finally, God opened up the door, gave, her, gave Hadassah favor, Esther favor, and opened up this opportunity. Now, I don't know what it was that she thought she was going to be there for. Maybe she thought, oh, Mordecai, my cousin, had such a great idea. Now I'm taken care of. Uh, all of my financial things are gone, my worries, and now I'm the queen. But there was something else that God was setting up. We also saw how at one point the king was being threatened by assassins. Mordecai foiled the plot, told Esther, she told the king. These guys were arrested and taken away, and nothing was done until the night the king couldn't sleep. And he went to read some of the scrolls. And there he said, what was done for this man? He said, nothing. And all of these things began to come in play. The timing of it was appointed by God. And here is the beauty of it. You could never figure out a plan like this to happen. But God was orchestrating behind the scenes all of these things. You know, one of the things that I thought about when we talk about the cornerstone of liberty, and we talk about liberty versus tyranny, and we talk about freedom versus enslavement, Israel went through cycles of sin and redemption, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. We are, as a nation, in a similar cycle. We have submitted to the voices out there that have said, don't get too caught up in, and go off the deep end with this religion stuff. But you know what? It's not religion stuff. It's relationship with God. And if we put him first, God will open the door to bring redemption for others as well. This is so important because if we get sidetracked by the voices that are telling us and trying to stifle the work that God is doing in us, benching us, or maybe we bench ourselves, you know, in the games when you're out there, if the coach benches you, you can't play. But what's worse is if we bench ourselves. We need to be listening to our coach, listening to the Lord, listening to what his mandate is for winning the game, but more than that, winning the game of life. And so when we go through this, there are things to consider. There is a passage in Romans 12, which we're going to look at. But let me, let me start with these verses first in Esther. In Esther 4, it, it says this in verse 12. It says this. Let me read it from verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him this message from Mordecai. All the king's officials, as well as the people in the royal providences, Know that if any one man or woman approaches the king in the inner courtyard without being summoned, there is just one law. He must be put to death. 
unless the king holds out the golden scepter for him to remain alive. And I haven't been summoned to the king for the past 30 days. Now, he was telling her there was a problem at hand. There was a problem where Haman was going to put out this mandate. And there was one point where Esther sent out people said, oh, don't go in sackcloth and ashes. It's not in style. You look terrible. Give him clothes. He didn't want any part of it. He would not do that because he saw the treachery that was at hand. He saw the call for the demise and the destruction of the Jewish people. So then again, in verse 12, it says, Upon being told what Esther had said, Mordecai asked them to give Esther this answer. Don't suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace, you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows whether you didn't come into the royal position precisely for such a time as this. Now, the key here is not just the words that he spoke to Esther when she was questioning and saying, along the lines of normal thinking, this is not a good idea to just go before the king without being summoned. It ends up with a death penalty. Not a good thing. He said, think about it. You may have come for such a time as this. He says, don't think you'll be safe from what will happen, the calamity that will happen to the Jewish people. But I think the most powerful part of this is when he says, if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance, doesn't say we'll be over, you're the only hope we have. He says, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction, but you and your father's house will perish. He's saying that God is not dependent on her. That God will bring deliverance by a different means. But think about it. Maybe you've come to this place for such a time as this. Now, what she did is very significant. She called on all of the Jews within Shushan to fast for three days to fast and to pray. And what I think about with that is that it wasn't just the idea of let's have a prayer meeting or let's fast and let's mourn. She wanted the people to have skin in the game. You know how often it is that we look at what's going on in the political realm around us and we cheer for our guy, whoever it is. And we are like spectators watching it all unfold. If we say anything, it's to either enhance the position of our, our voice that's out there, our person that's standing there, or it's to denounce the other voices. The fact is that what she was calling on them to do is to have some skin in the game. We are not merely spectators. We are participants. And when they were putting some pedal to the metal, putting action to their faith, 
they weren't saying, I wonder if it's going to work. Well, let's see. Do you think it'll work? Do you think she'll be able to talk to him? I hope she gets in. Yeah, what do you think? Ah, it's not possible. I mean, the, the dialogue could have gone on. They could have talked about this forever. Opinions are not going to bring transformation and change. But she knew enough to say, you go to prayer. You go and fast. You seek the face of God, even though God's name is never mentioned in this book. And the implication was that they were all in this together, not waiting to be lambs for the slaughter. And in all of this, God orchestrated an amazing set of circumstances to bring this transformation about. You know, one of the things that happened also is her response. It says in verse 15 of chapter 4 of Esther, Esther had had them return this answer to Mordechai. Go, assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan and have them fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. Also, I and the girls attending me will fast the same way. Then I will go in to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Then Mordecai went his way and did everything Esther had ordered him to do. Now, isn't it interesting? Mordecai raised her. He was the uncle. He raised her, or the cousin. But he took her orders and spread it out to the others because she was taking the mantle to go forward. And God brought an amazing deliverance for the people. Now, I thought about this in regards to to the way that Mordecai was treated. And I thought about it in light of something that was kind of unusual. How many are familiar with the book Uncle Tom's Cabin? Right? Well, this was rather amazing to me because I recently watched the movie version of it again. And one of the things that you see, and it's kind of an interesting way when we talk about spin that people put on stuff, when people speak of an Uncle Tom, they talk about, they're thinking about like, you know, somebody who just listens to what the master says and somebody who just goes about and is just trying to get by and all of that. There were people in the story like that. Sambo was one of them. Whatever had to happen, he did to save his own skin. But when it came to Uncle Tom, Tom wasn't like that at all. In fact, most people, white and black, don't even understand who he was. When you look at the story, he was a strong man of the word and of character and of prayer. And they present that in this. It was presenting what was going on in the South in a very dramatic way, showing the horrible conditions of what was going on, showing the ownership and the brutality of slavery. It was a book that had never been out like that before. And in fact, it is said that that book sold more books than any book other than the Bible in all the different languages. And it was the catalyst. When we talk about God orchestrating things, it was that book itself that was the key factor. Even Lincoln mentioned that she was the cause of this. She was the catalyst for bringing it about. People all of a sudden became aware of what was going on, and they 
fought for this and the Civil War came and deliverance from slavery and liberty and freedom, always at the core, liberty and freedom was there. But I found it amazing because in the story, you see all of these things within grasp. He was doing the right thing all along the way. And when he finally came to another Amalek-type character, the third master he was with, the second one was going to free him because of the relationship that his young daughter had before she died. The way that this man was so, that Tom was so filled with the Lord and with prayer and with the word. And he said, Friday, I'm going to let you go free. I'm going to sign the papers for your freedom. In the meantime, he gets robbed and stabbed and dies. And they sold him as his own slave to a horrible man. And you know the name, Simon Legree. People have heard the name, but that was the one. And he was so brutal that he said, if we work a slave to death, it doesn't matter. I'll just buy more. If we beat him, and here's the part I'm trying to say. His mindset was very similar to Haman's in that he was so angry at this man defying him that he became horribly outraged, everything. There was a point where a woman, Tom was carrying the cotton for this woman. They told on him, <laughs> and he said, beat him. And then he says, I want to make you a leader. He says, here's what you're going to do. I want you to whip her. He said, I won't do that. And this is where the character comes in. He says, you won't do that. He says, the Bible doesn't permit me to do that. And he says, you believe the Bible. Well, doesn't it say you're supposed to listen to your masters? And he says, I will not go against the word of God. I will not do that to another human being. He says, then I'm going to beat you. And he says, you can beat me, but I'm not going to do that. And they beat him. Later, I don't mean to go into a whole lot of story on this, but later, there were two women who escaped. And he said, tell me where they went, or I will kill you. He said, you can kill my body, but you can't kill my soul. And he allowed himself to be beaten. And he was, in some ways, like a messianic character. He stood for what the Word of God said. And here the people from his old home came finally to pay his release. But he was dying. And his spirit and his heart and his attitude was there for the people. He was not this you know, tap dancing kind of character that people sometimes use the term. In fact, I heard somebody say the other day in reference to it, he said, when they call him an Uncle Tom, he says, thank you. You never read the book, did you? When it comes to the things and the deliverance with Esther, and they said, oh, those Jews, I say, thank you. You never read the book, did you? <laughs> when we look at it, we see the hand of God moving. And I'm thinking that these elements, these things that we see of the adversary and how he haunts people and how it stirs. The result is 
when they have a mindset of devouring, they end up devouring themselves. And so what happens is, if you think about it, bitterness and hatred are contagious. But so is hope. And when you look at what Haman was trying to do, Haman was trying to cancel Mordechai. He wanted him out of the way. He did not like the fact that he was going against the image, the self-image of his importance. And so he was blinded by his emotions and by his anger. He couldn't think clearly. And he thought everything was working out just fine. He manipulated the king to make a decree to kill the Jews. A decree that couldn't be broken. And all of the different things in place... God was working beyond what man could have done. There was no judge to go to. There was no way out of it. But God made a way, humiliated Haman in the process, and then had that whole thing that happened with regards to being invited, just the king and him, to a banquet that Esther was making. Wow. He was on top of the world. He thought everything's coming up roses. Everything is great. And in the process, God was setting him up for a fall. And the deliverance of our people came. You never know what the catalyst is going to be, but we need to be tied into the Lord and to what his word says. When we walk in obedience to him, all things are possible. He wanted to cancel Mordecai. But isn't it interesting that the one thing he ended up doing when he saw the humiliation that was going on, he wanted to cancel all the Jews. In fact, before that happened where he marched through, he thought it was all working out. He made up this whole thing, not only for Mordecai to be gone, but kill them all. And the influence of his words spread throughout the land. They were going to be slaughtered everywhere they were. And the new decree finally came after Haman was hung and his sons. The new decree came, you can defend yourself. They couldn't abolish the decree according to their laws. But they made a new decree, you can defend yourself. And you would think, and here's the way that this craziness works. You would think that if they understood what happened to Haman, that in all the provinces they would have said, you know what? It's not worth it. Leave them alone. But they still attacked them. And they defended themselves and they slaughtered all of those who came in attacking the Jewish people. Later, there was another element of redemption happening because it says in chapter uh, 8, it says, Meanwhile, Mordecai, verse 15, left the king's presence arrayed in royal blue and white, wearing a large gold crown and a robe of fine linen and purple in the city of Shushan. They shouted for joy. For the Jews, all was light, gladness, joy, and honor. When redemption comes, it's, it's a joy that cannot be explained. In every province and city where the king's order and decree arrived, the Jews had gladness and joy, a feast and a holiday. Many, now listen to this in verse 17, many from the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. From the place of walking in fear and pending destruction, people around said, I'm with them. 
and you had many who became a part of the Jewish people. Because of the hand of God moving, because somebody, Mordechai, stood up, because Esther stood up. And he says in chapter 9 about the observance, it says, remember and observe, verse 28, through every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim would never cease among the Jews or their memory be lost by their descendants. This is a tremendous promise that God made. And this is the welfare that was there for them to take care of them. Uh, I wanted to mention just a couple other passages in closing. When it comes to the challenges before us, we need to, as you mentioned last week's message, in Luke 9, it said, if you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Keep pressing forward. There's another place where it says, uh, where Paul said, I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of the Messiah Yeshua. He doesn't back down. He keeps moving forward. We need to keep moving forward in the mandate that God lays out for us. And then here in Romans 12, Romans 12, he said this, it's a familiar passage, but this is the other type of slavery that we are dealing with in all of these kinds of situations. It says, I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourself as a sacrifice, living and set apart for God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. And then verse 2. In other words, do not let yourself be conformed to the standards of the olam hazeh of this world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what God wants and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. God wants us to be able to succeed, but it comes by letting our minds and our hearts be renewed, be transformed by what God says, by, his, by, by walking in union with him. In fact, he says towards the end of that in verse 5, so that there are many of us, and in union with Messiah, we comprise one body. There are a lot of people with different backgrounds, different things that they're able to do, but he says, we are of many, we are one, and in union with the Messiah, we comprise one body with each of us belonging to the other. There is something about understanding what God is building and bringing together, a building not made with hands, bringing us as lively stones together to see the hand of God move to those who are not yet redeemed, for them to experience the blessing of God, for them to be like those multitudes that decided we're going to be with the Jews, we're going to follow because they see the hand of God moving in their behalf. We need to be able to be standing like Mordechai and like these others to be able to be uncompromising in our position. I mentioned Uncle Tom, an amazing person who gave himself for the people instead of looking out for his own skin. An amazing man depicted there, and it was that book they credit that changed the course of history with the abolition of slavery and all that followed. I want to mention a passage just, it happens to follow in Romans 13. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. Verse 12, the night is almost over, the day is almost here. 
So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and arm ourselves with the weapons of light. Let us live properly as people do in the daytime, not partying and getting drunk, not engaging in sexual immorality and other excesses, not quarreling and being jealous. Instead, clothe yourselves with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Don't waste your time thinking about how to provide for the sinful desires of your own nature. Don't get in arguments over opinions. What he's saying is don't get sidetracked by what you're suffering by those around you, but plug yourself into the core of what God is doing and let him work his transforming power so that no matter what comes against us. We stand firm. We stand strong in the Lord. And he gives us the words. He gives us the ability. I don't think Stephen, the disciple who was stoned to death because he spoke out boldly for the Lord, was thinking, I hope I can die in this process. He wasn't thinking about it at all. He was just so concerned for the people. And what you see about his sincere commitment to the people was that he did just what Yeshua did when he was dying after being stoned almost to death and then dying. Before he did it, he looked and saw Yeshua standing in the heavenlies. And he said, do not hold this to their charge. Like Yeshua, when he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And out of that circumstance that God orchestrated, not to say that God was pleased to see Stephen die. That's not the point. But out of that, I'm sure others, but Paul came out of it and had such an impact. And that left an indelible mark in his life forever of what he had done. And his focus on the Lord was so absolute that all the accolades he had in his life were like nothing. He said it was like dung. It was like trash in comparison to the excellency of knowing Messiah. We need to be in that place for such a time as this. We need to be in that place and not get sidetracked by all of the arguments and all of the fighting and the infighting. The adversary's purpose, we mentioned this before, the adversary's ultimate purpose is to divide and conquer. If we don't allow him the avenue to divide us, he loses his footage. He loses his control. And God opens up doors to transform people's lives. We need to stand strong in him. We need to stand strong in supporting one another. We need to be in union with Messiah and in unity with one another to see the message of God's good news go forth. Don't spend so much time trying to tear down and identify all the bad news and end up sharing our opinions of what we think is bad about it. But let's make a bold effort to stand strong because if we are not the ones that God will use in such a time as this, if we bench ourselves and back off, God will raise up deliverance from somewhere else but we'll perish. We need to be focused on what God says to do and not worry what the enemy yells and shouts and screams. We need to stand strong and stand against tyranny and stand against all those things by doing what God says to do 
and bring a message of deliverance for the world around us, bringing restoration. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the promises that we see. The joy that we have with Purim as we celebrate is the joy really of hearts being brought to a place of repentance, of coming into a place of knowing what the boundaries are and walking within the scope and in the boundaries that you lay out to walk in conformity to your word and not conforming to the world around us. And Lord, we ask you to transform our hearts, to transform our minds, to give us clear focus, to think on the things that you lay out for us in your scripture so that we can speak with boldness and with authority because we are walking in union with you not just declarations of faith, but actions that back it up. And Lord, we ask you to bring your power to bear, bring your circumstances to work in our behalf and in behalf of those who are suffering around the world. Lord, we call upon you to give us hearts of restorers, that when we see someone going astray, we who are spiritual, you said, restore such a one. Lord, help us to have hearts to restore and not to denigrate or tear down. That we would see the kingdom of God established. That people would look at us and say, without question, these truly are his disciples. Look at the love they have for one another and look at the love they have even for their enemies. Unheard of, unthinkable. But it's from God. And we need to put him first in every way so that he can keep letting us be transformed by the renewing of our mind, renewing our hearts, setting us free so that we can help set others free. Lord, we thank you. If, if there are people who have never asked Messiah into your life, that's the beginning stage. It's not trying to find somebody who will answer it for you. When you have the king himself available to open up and share with you the truth and the reality of the relationship that he has longed for to know you and to make himself known, and to make his home in you. It begins by asking him to forgive you of your sins and asking Yeshua to come into your life, applying the sacrifice that was made for you and asking him to come in and forgive you. His redemption will wash over you and you'll experience the joy of his salvation, of wholeness. And it's the beginning of a new relationship and a new walk with him. And I encourage you to pray that. And then talk with me also. Let me know and we can talk about it. Any questions you have, we're here for you. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Oh, I didn't even show you that. I wanted to show you. Run, run that back for one second. I, I meant to do this. I forgot. Back to the other one. Back to the, other one. Here, back to the next one. Okay, this was, I, I, I just, I, Ronald Reagan said this. He said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. And go to the next one here. We mentioned this before. Uh, Ellie Wiesel, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. 
Let me bring this last one up. This is actually from Harriet Beecher Stowe, who said, it's a matter of taking the side of the weak against the strong, something the best people have always done. And if we're going to be the best people that God can make, we need to be able to understand what the battle is, and we need to be able to stand for those who can't stand and be the ones to help fill in the gap and let God make us vessels of honor for him.